With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stay tuned for your weekly constitutional, a weekly discussion of interesting constitutional issues from gay rights to gun rights. YWC is produced in partnership with the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier, and is hosted by Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law. And it's starting now. Article 1 of the Constitution creates the Congress. Article 2 creates the President. And Article 3 creates the federal judiciary. But it didn't create all of the federal courts and all the federal judgeships that we now have. Instead, what it did is it created one court, the United States Supreme Court. It established what the jurisdiction of that court was, and it mentioned one judge, somebody we call the Chief Justice of the United States. But it didn't go any further than that. It gave Congress the option of going further if it wanted to. That is, Congress could create more courts and could create more federal judgeships. Congress has always done that, going all the way back to the very first Judiciary Act in 1789. There have always been more than one federal judge and more than one federal court, and those numbers have grown over the years. But the interesting thing is that with all the option that Congress has in this regard, it has the option to decide how many justices will sit on the United States Supreme Court. That first Judiciary Act all the way back in 1789 set the number at six, but eventually it rose until in 1863 there were 10 justices on the Supreme Court. A few years later, Congress brought it back down to nine, and that's where it's been. Ever since 1869, we've had nine justices on the Supreme Court, but that's just a matter of statutory law. That can be changed any time the Congress and the president agree to change it. The death of Justice Scalia, therefore, falls into a somewhat nebulous region of constitutional law. Congress has decided that it wants nine justices on the court, but at least one part of Congress right now, the United States Senate, is refusing to cooperate with the president in filling that ninth seat. Is ultimately that a constitutional position for the Senate to take? Well, reasonable minds disagree. Does it have any impact right now on the functioning of the court? Well, that actually is pretty much well established. And those who are concerned about the lack of action by the Senate on President Obama's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland, those who are concerned about it will make the argument that this is a very, very significant problem that the Senate really does have a constitutional duty to remedy. One of those critics is a woman named Nan Aaron. She works for an organization called the Alliance for Justice. And in just a minute, we'll speak to Nan about this. But before we do, I want to mention that I did contact Senator Charles uh, Grassley. He's the chair of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator Grassley uh, politely but uh, firmly declined my request for an interview. So then I contacted Senator Mitch McConnell, who who is the Senate Majority Leader, uh, as of this recording, I do not have a response from Senator McConnell. We do try to present both sides whenever we can, but today, it's all Nan Aaron. I'm Nan Aaron. I run the Alliance for Justice, which is an association of over 100 public interest and civil rights advocacy organizations. 
We have been a leader for several decades on the federal courts. We have helped hundreds and hundreds of nominees become judges and help coach them through the, the Senate. We identify and recruit individuals to be willing to be considered for judgeships. And we're very, very interested and push the notion that those who become federal judges ought to have a background, not only of excellence in the law, analytical, strong analytical ability, but be people who have demonstrated commitment to equal justice, have to have done work as lawyers that show that they are committed to helping those at the margins, those who are underprivileged, to ensure that our judges are individuals who will be open and fair to everyone, not simply the wealthy and powerful. So to borrow a phrase, you want judges who are empathetic. Well, <laughs> empathetic <laughs> is not a popular term, uh -huh. as we know mm -hmm. from, from Sonia Sotomayor's adventures in getting confirmed. But yes, we want, we want individuals who understand how the law affects everyday people. Well, it sounds to me that you're very focused on the judiciary. Could you talk about the importance of the judiciary sort of in general terms or about the rule of law generally? And, 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 and moreover, are you talking mostly about the state or the federal judiciary? So today we're going to talk about the federal judiciary, the 800 and some judges at the Supreme Court level. As we all know, there are nine uh, judges at the courts of appeal level and then district court judges throughout the country. And as all of your listeners know, the judiciary is one of the three branches of government and unfortunately doesn't get the kind of attention and discussion it deserves, um, particularly given the fact that almost every aspect of life in this wonderful country is ultimately decided by a federal judge. Um, typically, uh, a judge at the district court or court of appeals level. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you on that one. I don't think that the judiciary gets nearly the attention it deserves. We've done an actual series of, of episodes over the past couple of years just specifically on judges at the federal, state, local level and, and the things that they do. But I'm reminded that just last night um, I was speaking to a, a combination group. It was a local bar association that was doing a CLE and uh, also it was co-sponsored by the local branch of the Sons of the American Revolution, who were always interested in constitutional issues. And at one point, I simply asked the, the group, and there were perhaps, I don't know, 40, 50 people there, uh, who can name all the, the nine justices on the Supreme Court? And <laughs> there was a laugh followed by about, uh, oh, two or three minutes. Uh, and poor old uh, Justice Breyer was the one they couldn't get. We eventually got them all, though. I'm surprised they were able to get the others. Yeah. Every two years, we conduct focus groups, and you bring together an assortment of voters, um, Democrats, Republicans, moderates, 
in a room to talk about the courts. And it's rare that anyone in that room has any knowledge of the court. No one can usually name any of the justices, maybe one or two. In fact, people aren't even aware of how many justices there are. Right. I think the the dirt, the lack of knowledge about the court stems from a few things. One, we don't have civics courses anymore in our high schools. That's a tragedy. Uh, I remember being in high school, and those of of us with a, a grade point average over a certain number were able to avoid taking a civics class as as if it were um, something that no one wanted to take. And two, I'm always disappointed that our presidents don't talk more about the courts. After all, to a president, judgeships are not just instruments, but they're symbols of presidential power. Just think about uh, judges, unlike presidents, they don't serve four years or eight years, but they can serve a lifetime. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist served during during the presidencies of seven different presidents. Um, already, uh, John Roberts is, has served through two presidents and is about to be on the bench for the third president. So none of us is... Most of us are really not aware of just how powerful judges and justices are. And uh, given that, uh, there's so little attention paid. Think of State of the Union messages by presidents every year. It's rare that anyone will mention the, the courts other than to chastise the party out of power for slowing down or for not confirming his judges. So it's hopefully uh, it's going to change. And I think we have an opportunity, even up until this election, to prioritize the issue of the courts, particularly the Supreme Court. Yeah, Nan, whenever uh, anybody points out or anyone demonstrates uh, his or her lack of interest in the judiciary, two words or two names come to mind, John Adams and John Marshall. Uh, very few people remember anything that John Adams did during his presidency. I mean, uh, ask somebody about the XYZ affair sometime and you'll get a blank stare. But um, he appointed uh, John Marshall as the chief justice, and that had some of the most remarkable uh, and most long-lasting effects on the development of our constitutional democracy that one can imagine. And that was probably, in my mind, the single most important thing John Adams ever did. And Rehnquist and Roberts are examples of, uh, later examples of pretty much that same phenomenon. Yes, Supreme Court justices are incredibly powerful actors in our democracy today. Let's think about the Supreme Court case of Bush v. Gore, which really these nine individuals decided the outcome of, of the election in the year 2000. A few years ago, we had a Supreme Court that upheld same-sex marriage, which was a, a huge breakthrough. Um, Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Wade are other 
incredibly important landmark decisions that really changed the course of American history in our democracy. So uh, cases are, are immensely significant. And then, of course, there's the case of Citizens United. Huge, huge case. Which is blamed for every evil in the world today. Um, it is is regarded by so many Americans as a, a black mark and the case that unleashed millions and millions of dollars uh, into uh, influencing the political process. So I think you've convinced me, Nan. I think you've convinced me. I think I think we've established now that this is extraordinarily important stuff, um, and it's something we all should pay attention to. Um, and of course, that does bring us back to the Supreme Court, because most of us are not United States senators. Most of us um, are not going to get directly involved in the confirmation process, though that is certainly possible. And you certainly, I'd encourage you to write your senator, especially if he or she is on the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, if you're concerned about such matters. But Really, it, it, it seems to me that probably the single act that most of us commonly perform that potentially at least has the most impact on the federal judiciary is, is what we're about to do uh, in November, and that is to pull a lever either for uh, a Republican or a Democrat or a third-party candidate for president because it's the president who at least initiates the process, isn't it? Yes, and this election will be the most significant one, certainly in my lifetime, because we're not only electing a president, vice president, but we are determining the future course of the Supreme Court because the next president will be able to name uh, several new Supreme Court justices. This is due to the fact that three of the, the justices will be in their 80s uh, during the next presidential term. Justice Kennedy, Justice Breyer, Justice Ginsburg. So who's ever elected will be shaping the future of the court for decades to come. Right. And that can happen at any moment. My, my constitutional law students occasionally accuse me of being ghoulish uh, when I will sort of ask open-ended questions. Who, who, who do they think is going to die next um, or possibly retire next? But that's essentially what has to happen. Somebody has to leave the Supreme Court, and justices tend not to want to leave. They, I mean, it's probably one of the best jobs in the universe. So they can't be fired. They, their pay can't be lowered. Uh, they tend to hang on, but age does seem to be the thing that will either convince them to leave or will we'll take them out. Um, and you're right. We've got an elderly court, or at least a significant portion of it. And the three people you mentioned... One of them um, is more or less the centrist at the moment, or at least the center of the current court, and that's Kennedy. And then Ginsburg, of course, is probably the leader of the left wing of the court. And was the third one you mentioned Breyer? Uh, yeah, he typically votes with the left as well, so he's typically considered part of that four-person uh, block of voters. And so the stakes are very, very high, and the, the balance of the court very much uh, is in question, and it's going to be resolved in all likelihood, one way or the other, by the next president in conjunction with the United States Senate. Oh, it will be. It, it certainly will be resolved um, very, very soon with the election. I'm so disappointed that the issue isn't getting more coverage and conversation, but I envision over the next few weeks uh, the topic of the court will be much more frequently discussed, and I'm sure 
some questions will be asked during presidential debates that that go to the heart of the kinds of people that these two presidential nominees would would appoint to the Supreme Court. We we actually know already from Donald Trump, uh, given that he's shared with the public many names of individuals he'd like to see on the Supreme Court. So he's already given us some indication of of what he would do. Uh, Hillary Clinton has not yet addressed the issue in great detail, but I imagine that, that we will come to learn their views pretty soon. It's Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking with Nan Aaron of the Alliance for Justice, who is critical of the Senate's refusal to consider President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. After the break, we'll have our constitutional quiz, and we'll come back and speak some more with Nan Aaron. Stick around. My boy, are you here ready to give a quiz? I am. You see that my boy thing? I'm trying to let you know that I do acknowledge that you're, what, six months younger than I am? You're very paternal. Uh-huh. Yeah, I am sort of paternal today. You're looking youthful. I feel youthful. You feel youthful. Do you feel like giving a quiz? I do. Tremendous. Maybe we have someone who will be willing to take a quiz. Is there someone on the line? Yes, this is Reagan. Reagan, where are you from? Maryville, Tennessee. Maryville, Maryville, Tennessee is a beautiful little town. There's a beautiful little college there, isn't there? Yes, there is. Called appropriately enough, Maryville College, right? Exactly. Of course, most people would probably pronounce it Maryville, wouldn't they? If you don't live in Maryville. Yeah, they'd be wrong, but that's how they'd probably do it. Yeah, it's a very, very yeah. nice little town. Well, we're very happy to have you with us. Doug, do you have a quiz for Reagan? I do. I, it just reminds me of people who sometimes go to Louisville. Exactly. And when you're there, it's like, no, it's Lowell. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> well, Reagan, uh, welcome to your weekly constitutional. I've got a question for you, and um, okay. I'll give you four choices. Are you ready? I'm ready. Which U.S. constitutional amendment provides professional sports players the ability to kneel for the national anthem? Is it the First Amendment, the right to freedom of assembly, freedom of press, freedom of religion, and freedom of speech? Is it the B, Second Amendment, Militia, C, the Fifth Amendment, or D, the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration of, in the Constitution of certain rights that can't be denied? Uh, A, the First Amendment. She went right to that she one, did. Doug. Why? <laughs> Why would you say the First Amendment? I'll go along with the freedom of speech. Might even go into... Freedom, kind of a religion, being able to. So we can't we can't state. get you to think about maybe the Second Amendment and the fact that you could shoot something when you're kneeling. <laughs> well, with the recent controversy with over the football players and kneeling, it has to do more with protesting against a certain policy, as opposed to the right for him to 
they are armed. Okay, so peaceful protest, no guns. Doug, I don't think I'm going to get her to move off of this answer. Well, f- <laughs> for the record, I think he was wearing a short sleeve shirt, and so he did have that right to bear arms. Ah, oh, but you're right, Doug. Reagan. It is the First Amendment. It's that freedom of speech. A lot freedom. of people are very concerned about this, about mm-hmm. people kneeling during the national anthem. But yeah. you know what? It's kind of their right to do that, isn't it? Kind of their right indeed. Yeah. In fact, the kneeling is expressive conduct. Yeah. And it is also, as Reagan pointed out, also implicates the, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, the religion clauses as well. So Reagan, you nailed that one. Um, uh, I'm very impressed. Thank you. Absolutely. Send us an email to ywc at montpelier.org and we will and give us your t-shirt size. We'll send you a t-shirt. We'll send you a pocket constitution from James Madison's Montpelier. And we're very, very grateful that you took the quiz today. All right. Thank you. And I hope you have a great day. Well, thank you, Reagan. I hope you do too. And thank you, Doug. You bet. Hey, it's the Constitution. I read it for the articles. Bare arms indeed. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. And, you know, it's been six months, more than six months now, since Justice Scalia passed away uh, and since uh, President Obama has nominated a replacement for him. And many people, including my guest today, Nan Aaron of the Alliance for Justice, are very critical of the Senate's action or inaction, if you prefer. Uh, I should mention I have uh, tried to get Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa the chair of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, to come on the show and tell us why he's refusing to schedule hearings. He didn't want to talk to us, uh, so I asked Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, the same thing. And as of uh, now, we have not heard back from Senator McConnell. Of course, both of those invitations will remain open, at least until this this seat is filled. But, Nan, do you really expect us to be able to, to devote time to this issue which is, of course, very nuanced and difficult when we have so many other important things like uh, emails and the size of Donald Trump's hands to discuss. There isn't anything more important than the Supreme Court. There's nothing more important than than eliciting from these two candidates uh, their views as to the kinds of people they would appoint, how they envision the current role of the court, what are some of their favorite Supreme Court decisions, their least favorite Supreme Court decisions? These are critical questions to be asked. And an election, is, I can't think of a better time than an election to engage not just the candidates, but the country in a discussion of the court. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity, not only to help people think about why courts are important, but but we tend to think about the Supreme Court only in terms of the issue of abortion. And I think what is so important is for some of these moderators to pose questions that get out the, the full role and the full scope of issues that are argued briefed and decided by the court because they affect women, people of color, environmental, consumer, public health protections. Uh, so much of, of our American life is decided by these courts. And, and I would add only one other group, old white guys like me. We tend to get affected pretty, primar- uh, pretty uh, prominently by the Supreme Court as well. So it affects us all. It affects us all. And 
And, and the, court, the, the court's basically up for grabs. And so whoever is the president's going to have a lot to say about that. But of course, let's just briefly discuss before we get to the, the issue of the day, which is, of course, the death of Justice Scalia and um, the, uh, the stalled uh, renomination process of, of a successor. Before we get to that, let's just review briefly that um, the, the president nominates uh, and then he sends uh, or she sends the nominee over to the Senate. Uh, the Senate then refers it, pursue it to its sort of standing rules, uh, to the, something called the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is currently chaired by Senator Grassley. Uh, and by the way, we, we reached out to Senator Grassley and asked him to speak with us today and uh, got a very polite but firm refusal. So we'll, <laughs> uh, we, we are trying to present uh, multiple perspectives. Uh, but uh, Senator Grassley and his committee then would um, uh, interview the candidate. Uh, there'd be a lengthy process getting to know you. They'd hold hearings, which in all likelihood would be televised and very closely scrutinized. Uh, and then the committee would take a vote, and then based on that vote, it would either go to the full Senate or not. And then the full Senate takes a vote, and it takes, um, correct me if I'm wrong, just a simple majority uh, of the Senate, 51 senators, to vote in favor. And then that person, whoever he or she is, is now uh, on the Supreme Court as long as he or she uh, uh, serves uh, during good behavior. That's pretty much the process we're looking at, isn't it? All right. That was a pretty good rundown of the okay. process. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, Dan. Okay. Now, that we're just reminding ourselves, and most people listening probably already know that, but it's important to remember uh, what we're talking about. Well, I've already hinted at what we're, we're, we're going to be talking about today. We lost Justice Scalia, I believe it was back in March, and that has been a number of months ago. And depending on the date that the show gets broadcast, um, you know, we're going to be well beyond by a significant number of days. I believe the longest um, pendency of a Supreme Court nomination in American history uh, that has left us with a four to four split on the court. And I wonder if you could talk about the situation we now find ourselves in and, and what it's done and what it's doing thus far. Two thoughts. First. The Constitution envisions that, as you've said, that both the president and the Senate are co-equal partners in confirming or naming judges to Supreme Court, Courts of Appeal, District Courts. Uh, this language allowing both branches of government to work together is right there, smack right, in the, right there in, in, in the Constitution. And what we have today is a situation where one branch, that is the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, is refusing to own up to its constitutional responsibilities to confirm a justice to the Supreme Court. This is unprecedented. We have never before had a Senate refusing to act upon a nominee to the Supreme Court, particularly a nominee who enjoys support, and I, I want to emphasize this, from both Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, Justice Scalia passed away, and of course he was probably the intellectual and the leader in many respects of the right wing of the court. Certainly he was among the most outspoken and long-serving members of the conservative bloc, and also, depending on whom you ask, he might have been the most conservative justice on the court in many respects. Um, so his, his demise was, of course, a blow to his family and friends, but it was also a great blow to people who, uh, who agree with him. Um, and I think maybe that accounts for some of the reluctance to move um, on a nominee uh, whom you've identified as being one who's actually 
Well, he's a remarkable fellow, and he was designed as almost a compromise candidate. I believe his name is Merrick Garland. Could you talk a little bit about? Could you talk a bit about Judge Garland? So Merrick Garland is, has been on the D.C. Court of Appeals for several years. Uh, before that, he worked in the Department of Justice. Before that, in a in a law firm, uh, he's probably best known for uh, directing the Justice Department's investigation and prosecution of Timothy Vay and Terry Nichols. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh, yeah. Right, who were responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. So he's well-known, highly respected, uh, is, is, has a, a stellar career on the D.C. Circuit. He's known for writing cautious, measured, meticulous, fair decisions. And interestingly, when he was considered for a seat on the D.C. Circuit, he was confirmed by large numbers of Republicans as well as Democratic senators. In fact, a couple of days before President Obama named him to replace uh, Anthony, uh, Antonin Scalia, Orrin Hatch publicly suggested to President Obama that he promote, elevate Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. So this is not a dispute. This is not a fight over his credentials or the merits of his record. This is clearly a fight over two things. One, it's a uh, effort by Republicans to leave the seat open, hoping that a future Republican president will fill Antonin Scalia's seat so that the court can be can continue to be under a Republican majority. And that's very important. This has nothing to do with Merrick Garland's record, which is stellar. It is simply to hold the seat open for a future Republican to fill. Two, it's probably an indication, it exemplifies the kind of treatment that President Obama has encountered over his eight years as president, which is that every twist and turn of the road, he's been opposed by uh, Republicans in Senate. They have attempted to thwart his nominees. Uh, they've um, blockaded his nominees, so much so that Senate Democrats had to change the filibuster rules for lower court seats. All I'm saying is this is not just simply to hold the seat open, but it is a action. It is a punitive action against the president. And it is, as everyone would acknowledge, uh, so disappointing uh, to be seeing at this stage of the game. Well, now you said a moment ago that you felt that this was a failure of the Senate to live up to its constitutional responsibility. And let me let me play devil's advocate since uh, Senator Grassley uh, has, is not joining us. Um, isn't it possible, and certainly from the, the Senate's perspective, to argue as follows? Um, yes, we are an essential part of the confirmation process. Um, and simply refusing to consider this nominee or any nominee is effectively us saying no. And so there's nothing wrong or unconstitutional about this. In fact, 
The Constitution gives the Senate sole authority to determine its own rules, and the Senate actually has rules that effectively allow even individual senators to stop Senate action. Certainly, uh, the Senate has a longstanding rule called a filibuster, which effectively is the Senate saying, no, we simply won't vote on what you want us to do. So not only constitutionally, but traditionally, the Senate opposes things simply by <laughs> holding its breath and standing in the corner. It just won't go along with you. So um, do you really think that that's unconstitutional, what the Senate's doing? What Senator Grassley is doing is establishing a whole new process moving forward for judicial nominees. If Donald Trump wins the election and the Senate retains control, what he's suggesting is that, that Trump's nominees won't get hearings or votes. That's certainly not what the Senate process has, has ever uh, been about. It, this is not a process envisioned by the Constitution. I think if you look over the hundreds of years of Senate confirmations, uh, the Senate under Republican and Democratic rule has established that a nominee will have a hearing and a vote. It's that simple. Senator Grassley wants to change the rules for uh, the next several hundred years, so be it, but it w that would be unprecedented in American history. And basically, I would think any Democrat or Republican would raise an eyebrow. Um, everyone up for a judgeship, anyone up for an appointment is at least entitled to a hearing and a vote. And it is sheer cowardice on the part of the Republicans not to be willing to give Merrick Garland a hearing and a vote. The only reason for denying a hearing to Merrick Garland on the part of Grassley is, is his fear that Merrick Garland will become known by the American people and respected by the American people. Um, it is an act of uh, total resistance, mindless obstruction, but at the end of the day, it's just fear that the American people will come to understand, one, the importance of the court, but more importantly, why Merrick Garland is so fit to be the ninth justice on the court. So you think it's politically easier for the Senate to refuse him even a hearing uh, because they're concerned that if he does a hearing, that he, his qualifications and his demeanor and his temperament will be so appealing to the American people, it'll be harder for them to vote him down at that point? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking with Nan Aaron of the Alliance for Justice, uh, all about the refusal of the Senate to consider President Obama's uh, nominee for the court, Merrick Garland, and, and the implications uh, for the functioning of the court of that. And I, I have to say, this is obviously not just a constitutional issue. It's also very political. And I have invited leading Republicans from the Senate to come on the show. Uh, thus far, um, they've refused or I haven't heard back from them. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, Senator McConnell, Senator Grassley, if you want to come on sometime, we'd love to hear your side of this issue as well. After the break, we will have our Madison Minute and then we'll come back and finish our discussion with Nan because she's the only one who would talk to us.
In the years following the revolution, the United States was anything but a democratic nation. The concept of democracy had a decidedly negative connotation. To Aristotle, democracy was the deviant form of rule by the many, a devolved form of the polity that had descended into disorder, demagoguery, and mob rule, beholden to the impulsive, uninformed wills of the people. Many of the founding generations saw ancient examples of democracies as cautionary tales of what to avoid if the Americans wanted to build a government to last. James Madison was painfully aware that the small democracies that predominated in the ancient world have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. With your Madison Minute, I'm Jen Patia Howell. And now it's time to finish our discussion with Nan Aaron of the Alliance for Justice all about what it means for the Senate to refuse to confirm a replacement for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. I understand the politics then, but again, let me play a devil's advocate, or I, I suppose I should say Senate's advocate in this particular case. And another argument that's been made by a number of Republican senators is that uh, this being an election year, um, in fact, it was less than a year that President Obama had left in his term when uh, Justice Scalia passed away, um, that it's simply appropriate. We should simply wait and let the American people, as you say, uh, debate this, uh, make it part of the presidential election, and this appointment should go to the next president, whoever he or she is. Is that a valid argument? Uh, no, it's not a valid argument. We have a president. His name is Barack Obama. And he has the constitutional duty, the constitutional task, to name a successor here uh, to the to the Supreme Court. He has carried out his side of the bargain, and we would expect, and American people should expect, that the Senate carries out its role uh, in the bargain. Uh, so that's not a, that's not so that's not a tradition that we simply don't nominate and confirm uh, Supreme Court justices in election years. No, I can remember the last year of Ronald Reagan's presidency, for instance. Uh, Robert Bork was defeated, and uh, Anthony Kennedy was named by Ronald Reagan. Senate Democrats, in the majority, I might add, confirmed. Anthony Kennedy to a seat on the Supreme Court. So Democrats have, have certainly lived up to their constitutional promise of fairness and confirming nominees. It's Republicans now who uh, are simply boycotting or simply obstructing for no reason other than pure politics. And what effect does that have on the functioning of the court? We, I mean, we had the court was in sort of toward the end, but still in the middle of its uh, term last year when Justice Scalia uh, died. And so it had to function for a few months uh, before it uh, recessed for the summer. And now it's uh, having to function again as the new term begins this year with uh, only eight justices who are evenly split. What has been the impact of the, uh, the Senate's boycott of this process? Uh, the fact that there is a 4-4 conservative liberal deadlock has made a critical difference in a number of cases, which means in the future of the nation. Um, without Scalia to, to, to cast a deciding vote, public sector unions escape the effects of legislation, which would have 
effectively weaken them and harm them. Um, Texas clinics um, also did not have to adopt regulations that would have closed down most of them. You've just named two cases uh, where the uh, the conservatives seem to have shot themselves in the foot then because things would have been different, at least in theory, if there had been a ninth justice there to break a deadlock, and possibly Merrick Garland would have voted with them. Well, that that is true. But let's be very clear. When there is a deadlock on the Supreme Court, when there's a tie, uh, what happens is that the lower court opinion provides the result in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that when you've got a case involving uh, these Texas abortion regulations, public sector unions, and the decision by the lower court stands, that decision only affects those individuals living in that particular circuit, which means that the rest of the country is not clear what, what law governs. Abortion, right, sort of limbo. public sector. You're you're sort of you're left in limbo. Right. So you don't just, have a final resolution in any of these cases. Right. Just just to remind people, we have eleven numbered federal circuits. So there are eleven numbered courts of appeal around the nation who are divided up, uh, which are divided up geographically. And then there are a couple of other specialized courts of appeal, and these all feed into the Supreme Court. And one of the main reasons the Supreme Court might take a case is because of a so-called circuit split. I mean, the Fifth Circuit which is typically more conservative, might come to one result on a controversial case. And the Second Circuit, which is typically more liberal, might come to the opposite conclusion. And so the Supreme Court will not want important matters of law to be effectively different uh, in different parts of the nation. And so they'll come together to resolve those circuit splits. But as you point out, uh, so you've got an important case. uh, There's a split, perhaps. It comes up to the court and nothing. There's a tie. There's really no decision, and the courts at pains to say that there's no precedential value, there's no actual decision, but effectively, at least in the circuit involved where the appeals come from, it effectively affirms whatever the Circuit Court of Appeals has done. Um, And in the cases that you mentioned, that effectively gave at least a partial and temporary victory to more liberal uh, people. Um, In fact, I think something similar happened in the affirmative action case, in the Fisher versus Texas case, didn't it? Well, I sh- yes, it did in affirmative action. But I should say, on the other hand, the Supreme Court tie blocked President Obama's immigration plan. Yeah, that was a big one. And this plan would have effectively, it effectively would have shielded as many as 5 million undocumented immigrants from deportation allowing them to legally work in the United States. That was a huge, huge blow to millions of immigrants in this country. Okay, so in what other ways is the current um, uh, absence of Justice Scalia, how, how else is it affecting the court's business, or, or might it affect the court's business during this term? Well, it, for one thing, we're seeing the court accepting fewer cases for the current upcoming, for the upcoming term, fewer hot-button issues, but I want to make a point here, Uh, and that point is that many, because of the deadlock court, have assumed that, oh my goodness, we've got a a court that is leaning much more in the direction of liberal ideology. And I think the important 
thing to note is that th these cases, particularly the case involving public sector unions, the case involving affirmative action at the University of Texas, the case involving Texas abortion clinics, um, these were not instances where the court made new law. These this were these were not signs of a activism on the heart of on behalf of the liberal justices on the court. Essentially, some of these cases probably shouldn't even have been accepted by the court in the first place. So, what we had at the le at the end of the session, in reality, w was cases merely upholding the status quo as opposed to representing any shifts to the left. Isn't that what it boils down to, Nan, is that the, um, that the court is not really capable of functioning the way it should, whether one's a liberal, one's a conservative, or a libertarian, or somewhere else on the political spectrum. Uh, the court is not doing its job. It's, it's not able to do its job. It's, a, it's actively avoiding um, controversial cases this term. I can almost hear them you know, looking at each other and saying, hey, guys, what's the point? <laughs> why, why should we grant cert in this case? Because it's likely just to end up in a deadlock. You know, we just really need to wait around until we've got a ninth justice, and then we'll have more of a sense of where the court wants to go. And that's when you can actually start digging in and doing your job. Right now, you've got a, a dysfunctional court. That's right. And not only have pundits and editorial boards and senators articulated that view, but um, the Supreme Court justices themselves have bemoaned the fact that they're operating at not maximum capacity. So many have spoken out. I wish our chief justice would address that issue more forcefully. Yeah, he's the leader of the whole branch. In fact, you know, he's not the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's actually the only federal judge who's specifically identified in Article Three of the Constitution. He's the chief justice of the United States. And among his responsibilities is the overall administration of our system of justice. That's why he testifies in front of Congress and asks them for more money and for this or that change. Um, however he feels about it, it would be nice to hear from the Chief Justice on this. And you're saying he hasn't really, uh, really spoken out on this issue very much? We hear from the Chief Justice every December when he issues a State of the Judiciary report. Mm -hmm. But he uh, plays, he's probably the most important uh, forget that. Um, it is incumbent on the Chief Justice to address this issue. It's an issue that affects not just the operation of the Supreme Court, but the future of justice in America. And for the Chief Justice to, to remain quiet, uh, I think is, is, is a serious issue and a problem, and he ought to be uh, outspoken on this issue. After all, it's it's the court that he leads, and uh, he ought to be the chief spokesperson about ensuring that uh, the Senate does its job. Okay, well, the next time he calls me up for advice, I'll let him know you said that. Uh, <laughs> okay, now it's... Particularly coming from me. There, well, yeah, or me. Uh, crystal ball time. Uh, let's just assume an outcome, and this is only an assumption, we're not taking sides, but let's assume for the moment that the Republicans' worst fears are realized and Hillary Clinton uh, not only goes into the White House, 
but that the Senate flips, the Senate's in play now. Um, and it's possible, maybe not probable, but it's possible that there'll be a slim Democratic majority. Uh, if the current Senate, which still, of course, is in office until January, uh, if it's confronted with such a nightmare scenario from its perspective, um, do you think maybe it'll decide that it should get get back to business and confirm Merrick Garland uh, quickly? I hold out no hope that the Senate Republicans will confirm anyone quickly. But wouldn't that be better for them? I mean, Merrick Garland really is. I mean, he's he's a bit left of center. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, but he's more or less a centrist. And as you said, he's eminently qualified. And many Republicans have voted to confirm him uh, in the past. Um, if I'm, I'm just, again, trying to play devil's advocate, if I'm Chuck Grassley, if I'm Mitch McConnell, uh, the devil I know, that's Merrick Garland, uh, who's not that much of a devil perhaps now um, in the light of day, uh, is a lot better than the devil I don't know, who's whoever you know Hillary Clinton's going to appoint, whoever the new Senate's going to confirm after January of next year. I might be inclined to move very quickly and have a very different attitude about Merrick Garland if I'm Mitch McConnell or Chuck Grassley come you know, mid-November. I have seen no evidence on the part of either Mitch McConnell or Chuck Grassley to perform their constitutional task in a responsible way, none whatsoever. For eight years, they have led effort after effort to obstruct, blockade, hold up nominees of President Obama to every level of the federal judiciary. Uh, they've been brazen and open about it. And I hold out no hope, though Merrick Garland is the compromise candidate, they're, that they're going to fold their tents, go home. I hope I'm wrong. But I don't see any indication, and I, I think in part that is due to the fact that, that two, those two senators feel beholden to the right-wing base of the Republican Party. And as, as long as these two are in office, they will do everything they can to nurture and placate that base of the party, which means they will uh, obstruct... Uh, as much and as long as they can, any candidate to the to the Supreme Court. Again, hope I'm wrong. <clears throat> I hope Democrats stand up very loudly and uh, call on the American people to pressure Republican senators to do their jobs. I'm hoping that will work, but. So far, I have seen no responsible action on the part of either of those two Republican leaders to carry out their constitutional duties. That's an interesting point. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I think it would make eminent sense for them to, to do as I've suggested and to go ahead and confirm Merrick Garland, because uh, I think he probably would be a lot more moderate than perhaps, and I'm just speculating, uh, people who might be nominated uh, by Hillary Clinton uh, in the event that she won. On the other hand, uh, as you point out, uh, each of those guys is a politician. They've got to worry about eventual reelections, and they're going to be held accountable for what they do. And maybe they really feel on an individual basis that their own uh, longevity in the Senate depends upon them holding the line and uh, gritting their teeth, even though the likely ultimate outcome is that Hillary Clinton gets to steamroll them in a few months and put people who are even more to the left on the court. I think that's right. I Yeah. We do unfortunately see politicians putting their own ambitions and futures often ahead of 
what's good for uh, the constituents they represent. Well, well, well. Any final thoughts, Nan? We're just about out of time here. Any final thoughts about this or any other issues that the Alliance for Justice is concerned about? Yes. Um, I think it's incumbent upon all of us in November when we go to vote, and I'm hoping we're all going to vote, that we not only acknowledge to ourselves that we're voting for a president, but we are voting for the future of the Supreme Court. And this is a message that we've got to take to our friends, our families, our relatives, our co-workers, anyone and everyone. We can speak to contact that this will be the most important election in our lifetimes, given the huge power the Supreme Court court has over every aspect of our lives. Well, Nan Aaron of the Alliance for Justice, thank you so very much for bringing this extremely important issue to our attention and spending such a long time with us talking about it and all of the, the details here. I, I think I have to say I agree with you about the importance, and, um, and I hope that people will very carefully consider this issue and that they will uh, make a reasoned decision when they go to the polls in November. So thank you. Sure. A pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Nan Aaron of the Alliance for Justice for telling us all about her concerns and concerns of many people about the impasse over appointing a replacement for Justice Scalia to the Supreme Court. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by the fifes and drums of Colonial Williamsburg. Our Madison Minute is by Jen Patia Howell of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. You need to get out there and visit. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are a part of the American experiment. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.